Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, science writer Margaret Wertheim speaks on space versus spirit, why the battle between science and religion is driving us crazy. Recorded before a live audience as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, Margaret Wertheim is an internationally noted science writer and commentator. She is the author of Pythagoras' Trousers, A History of the Relationship Between Physics and Religion, and The Pearly Gates of Cyberspace, A History of Space from Dante to the Internet. A contributor to the New York and Los Angeles Times, Wertheim also writes the Quark Soup column for the LA Weekly. She has contributed to more than a dozen anthologies and has lectured widely at universities and colleges around the globe. In 2003, Wertheim founded the Institute for Figuring, an organization that presents lectures and exhibitions about the poetic dimensions of science and mathematics. She is currently working on a book, Imagining the World, about the role of imagination in theoretical physics. Here is Margaret Wertheim. My talk tonight is on the subject of why science and religion together are driving us crazy. Let me begin with the statement that I'm sure you are all aware of, that our culture seems to be at war with itself. And anyone who hasn't perhaps been aware of this, let me just give you a few statistics. In November of 2004, Gallup poll conducted a survey of 1,000 Americans on their views about the origin of man. Asked about the statement that God had created human beings in pretty much their present form over the last 10,000 years, 45% of people agreed. Another 38% opted for an alternative that humans had developed over millions of years, but God had guided the process. Just 13% of respondents were in agreement with the statement that humans had developed by purely natural causes, in a sense, materialistic evolution. A similar poll by the Pew Research Centre last year showed similar results with a slightly less theistic bent. In this case, they surveyed 2,000 people, 42% of whom agreed that divine guidance had guided the process of human evolution. Another 18% also agreed that God had been involved in the process, although they would allow some form of evolution to have taken place. In short, though we live in the age of science, almost half of our nation outrightly rejects a scientific account of human origins, and more than two-thirds insist that if evolution played some role, God played a role as well. These facts have famously engendered much hand-wringing in scientific circles, and those of us who care about science have much to fuel our anxieties. In Dover, Pennsylvania, in Kansas, and here in California, school boards are voting creationism and its new form, intelligent design, onto the curriculum. Intelligent design, we should be clear, is a blatant attempt to disguise a fundamentalist Christian gender in the trappings of a scientific theory. Twelve years ago, I wrote a book called Pythagoras' Trousers, which is actually a history of the relationship between physics and religion. It seems astonishing from the perspective of today, but at the time my publishers were unenthusiastic about this conjunction. Nobody cares about science and religion, my editor declared cheerily one day, halfway through the process. Just stick to the latest developments in cosmology, she said. But how much difference a decade makes? In just the past month, 
US News and World Report ran a cover story on science and the soul. The current issue of Discover magazine features an article about the scientific search for the neurological basis of religious experience and the genetic basis of religious beliefs. Seed magazine, another science magazine, a younger, hipper version, devotes a large chunk of its current issue to the great biologist E.O. Wilson and his new book, which is trying to reach out to evangelical Christians on the subject of biodiversity. Beneath all of these publications is a tension, and the tension is in the question, how is it that science should respond to religion and to the vast numbers of people for whom religion is a central part of their daily lives? But we may ask another question, not just how can science respond, but how should science respond? For some champions of science, the only reasonable response is all-out warfare. As they see it, religion is a scourge that we must rid our society of once and for all. The cover of Time magazine, for instance, just this week, bluntly touts the headline, Science versus God. Inside what we find is what Time refers to as a heated or spirited debate between the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, who is a famous God denier, and Dr Francis Collins, a geneticist who spearheaded the Human Genome Project and is a born-again Christian. Dawkins' current book is called simply The God Delusion, and in this book he compares religion to a toxic virus, something on the order of HIV and Ebola combined. He also makes the claim, quite bluntly, that raising children in a faith environment is tantamount to child abuse. Dawkins is also one of the people mentioned in a recent Wired magazine article on the new atheism, which profiles a number of militantly atheistical scientists proudly touting their freedom from the shackles of faith. The philosopher Daniel Dennett has given a name to this clan. He calls them the Brights. He himself is one of them. The tacit implication here is that theists are the darks. Until very recently, most scientists rather gleefully ignored religion, assuming that the fad for creationism would burn itself out like a craze for hula hoops or flared trousers. I think it's fair to say that the scientific community was blindsided by the depths of the religious fervour that has bubbled to the surface of American culture over the past decade and the consequent challenges to the scientific world picture that we now find routinely in school classrooms and talkback radio shows across the nation. In my talk tonight, I want to respond to this rejection and talk about some of the forces that I think lie at the heart of what is rapidly becoming a struggle for the hearts and minds of our populace. I'm not going to talk about politics here, although I suggest that the conclusions I'm going to draw do in fact ultimately have big political consequences. What I want to talk about is what I believe is in some sense the more fundamental clash between two competing worldviews both of which make claims about what it means to be human in a wider cosmological scheme. As the rhetoric on both sides of this debate has intensified, some commentators have tried to suggest that there actually isn't a fundamental conflict between science and religion. Stephen Jay Gould, for instance, the great evolutionary biologist, put forward a notion of what he called non-overlapping magisteria, According to Gould, adherents of science and religion can happily live together because their domains of expertise are quite separate. They're distinct and non-overlapping, as he put it. 
Science is what tells us about the workings of the material world, but religion, according to Gould, gives us precepts for our moral actions. So according to him, if we keep these two things distinct, we really don't have to worry about any tensions or overlap because they're really dealing with ultimately separate things. Gould dreamed up a clever name, but in fact this idea has been around since the Enlightenment. That idea that science tells us about the physical world and religion tells us about the moral world was sort of an accommodation that was come to at the end of the 18th century. And throughout the 19th century, scientists happily went about their business in a climate where most people in the Western world still believe fervently in God and they didn't see science as any great incursion onto their faith. But the trouble with this solution and the trouble with Gould's reiteration of it is that both sides of the divide are now making claims to territory that the other side has traditionally viewed as theirs. Scientists are making claims that they can talk about morality and religious believers are making claims that they can talk about the physical material world. So the very problem here is that people have different views about what they think is the proper role for both science and religion. And I want to suggest here that the reason for this actually goes deeper than is generally recognised. I actually think there is a fundamental clash here and one that is much more problematic than merely debates about evolution. It goes to the very heart of what we think reality is and what we think humans' role is within reality. You're listening to science writer Margaret Wertheim. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. 2006 has been a busy year for Zocalo Radio. Click on Zocalo's website to hear radio guests such as Pulitzer Prize winner Susan Laurie Parks, Nobel Peace Prize winner Mohammed Yunus, theater director Michael Ritchie, author Kwong Pham, and many more. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we return to our program, Space versus Spirit, Why the Battle Between Science and Religion is Driving Us Crazy, with Margaret Wertheim. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Seasons Givings is back for 2006, both on the web and on the radio. Listen for Kitty Feldy's reports on area volunteer groups on 89.3 KPCC. And go online to kpcc.org and send us your own inspiring story of volunteering or charitable giving. We may include it in the Seasons Givings blog. Remember your own community needs at this time of year. And happy holidays from all of us at KPCC. You've got mail. It's that simple. Have KPCC delivered to your inbox. Get program updates, membership info, and find out what's happening in Southern California. Signing up is simple. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter button. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to science writer Margaret Wertheim, recorded live as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. Most of the discussion about science and its relationship to religion has centred on religion, and that's certainly the overt subject of most of the public skirmishes. I don't want to diminish the importance of evolution as a topic, but I believe that the conflicts over evolution are really an index of a deeper issue. 
The problem is not that man was descended from apes or slime moulds, as people like Dawkins often suggests, but rather what the evolutionary view suggests about the nature of man as a whole. One thing it clearly suggests is that man is nothing special in the cosmological scheme. In the evolutionary tree mapped out by modern taxonomists, Homo sapiens are just one sub-branch of the primates, which constitute just one small subset of more than 5,500 species of mammals, which are themselves a tiny class of the overall kingdom of animals, who globally speaking are a rather superfluous embellishment to the vast tapestry of life on Earth, most of which is made up of single-celled bacteria who constitute not only the vast majority of species, but more than 50% of the biomass on planet Earth. As Christians decry and as scientists so often trumpet, in the Darwinian view of life, humans are not an apex at all. We're an afterthought. All this is true, but it's not Darwin who ultimately displaced us from the summit of creation. Darwin's theory of evolution spelled out the process by which humans could be incorporated into the naturalistic scheme, but the scheme itself had actually been laid out several centuries earlier in the scientific revolution. It is here that we find the roots of our current tensions, and so I want to move away now from talking about biology and our understanding of life to the subject of physics and our understanding of the cosmos as a whole, the space of being in which we perceive life to be embedded. It is here, I believe, in our conception of a wider spatial scheme that I think the deeper and more problematic conflict between science and religion becomes apparent. For the purposes of the radio audience, I'm going to describe now an image that we have up on the screen. The image on the screen is a picture of the medieval universe. And it's a picture that you will have all seen many times before in one form or another. Basically, the image is circular. The Earth is at the centre of this cosmos and it's surrounded by the ten crystalline spheres that carry the sun, the moon, the planets and the stars revolving around the Earth. So basically what we see here, sometimes this has been called the onion skin view of the universe. Basically you have these sort of layers of an onion with the Earth at the centre. This is the view of the universe that medieval people believed essentially for close to 2,000 years. It's a view that we inherited from the Greeks and which more or less came to an end with the scientific revolution culminating in Newton's cosmology. But this view of the universe has some very interesting qualities that are worthy of our attention. The Earth is at the centre and that is the lowliest place in the cosmic scheme. In the medieval cosmos, it's the periphery that is important. The periphery beyond the realm of the stars and the moon and the sun, on the outermost area of this diagram, we have the imperium of God. God lives beyond the material world. So the most important quality of the medieval cosmos is not that it's spherical, but that it is finite. The physical universe occupies a fairly small place, a fairly small space. The physical world, the material world of bodies and nature, is considered to be the small core of a universe, which ultimately is very limited. And beyond the realm of the physical world, because it is finite, there appears to be plenty of space left. And what we have space left for is the Christian soul. So the medieval universe is quintessentially what we call dualistic, 
It has two realms of being, the realm of matter and the body and the realm of the spirit or soul, which is also the realm where God dwells. Interestingly, for medieval people, it is spiritual space, the realm of the soul, that was considered to be the primary space of being. And the physical world, the realm of the body, was actually considered to be a secondary and rather pale reflection of the true reality, which is the realm of the soul. Now, the realm of the soul is not just an airy, fairy, nebulous thing. It had its own geography too, the geography of heaven, hell and purgatory that is so beautifully mapped out for us in Dante's Divine Comedy. So the medieval cosmos basically not only incorporated a realm for matter, it incorporated an entire other realm of being in which we could talk about moral action. And that moral action could, as it were, be located in a landscape. Hell was literally the place of sin. Heaven was literally the place of grace. So I think this picture of the world has to be understood in the totality. It wasn't just attempting to explain creation. The role of the medieval picture was also to explain things about how human beings came to be moral agents. So in a way, it mapped a cosmology too, And this cosmology is also depicted in another place, not just our picture of the universe itself, but also in our picture of salvation. For the purposes of the radio audience, I'm showing another picture now. The picture that I'm showing is Giotto's great depiction of the Last Judgment in the Arena Chapel in Padua. And what we see in this picture is also something that you will have all seen many times before in one form or another. We have Christ in the middle of the picture who is painted as the largest figure. Around him are the apostles in heaven and above him are the angels. On the left bottom side of the picture we see the saved, the people who are ultimately going to heaven. And on the right hand side of the picture we have the damned, those in hell. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this picture is that the figures are on different scales. Christ is by far the biggest figure in the picture, and that is because he is iconographically of the greatest spiritual stature. The angels and the apostles are slightly smaller than him, and the human beings are much smaller still. And the reason for this is that iconographically, medieval imagery was about trying to represent the hierarchy of the spiritual realm. Medieval image makers of the early period were not trying to depict the physical material world. They were trying to depict the immaterial reality of the Christian soul and the spiritual hierarchy of sin and grace. But we begin to see a shift in the late medieval period towards a new kind of representation that would ultimately lead to not only a new way of depicting Christ and the angels, but would ultimately lead us to see our universe itself in a new way. This is the movement that would give rise to what we now know as perspective painting. Whereas early medieval art was concerned with showing the spiritual hierarchy of the soul, the new trend that began to emerge in representation in the late 13th century started to focus on the material world and nature Instead of showing soul space, painters now became fascinated with the material world and how to depict convincingly natural scenes here on Earth. You're listening to science writer Margaret Wertheim. This is Zocalo. 
Join Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series as we kick off our 2007 season. On Tuesday, January 9th, 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents Jim Newton on Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. The work of Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren and the Warren Court is widely known and fiercely debated for its impact on far-flung fields such as racial equality, privacy, police procedure, and voting rights. Jim Newton is the Los Angeles Times City-County Bureau Chief and author of the new book on Earl Warren. This event at the Los Angeles Central Library is free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to science writer Margaret Wertheim. The image on the screen that I have now is a picture by Raphael at the height of perspectival realism. And we notice here in this image, or in any other perspectival image of the great Renaissance period, a radical shift away from the previous medieval imagery, which tended to be flat and have blue or gold backgrounds. Perspectival painting is marked by realistic depictions of landscapes. We see mountains and trees and buildings looking genuinely three-dimensional. And human figures also are all drawn on the human scale, so that Christ, the saints and the angels become the same scale as ordinary men and women. And basically, this new representational shift is an index of a brand new philosophy that is coming into being in the Western world. After a thousand years of neglecting science, in the late medieval period, Europeans once again became interested in science and in understanding, observing and trying to figure out how the natural world worked. They inherited this science from the ancient Greeks, passed through the Arab world, and we should never forget that the Islamic world was the cradle of modern science throughout the early Middle Ages. But there is a particular inspiration that was going on in these images that is germane to our discussion today. And that is the influence of the ancient Greek philosopher, mathematician and proto-physicist Pythagoras of Samos. Two and a half thousand years ago, Pythagoras had declared that all is number and that the world had been created according to mathematical principles. In the late Middle Ages, around the time that Giotto was painting his last judgment before... Pythagorean influences began to re-emerge in Western culture and gave rise to the idea that the Judeo-Christian God was himself a mathematical creator, that God had created the world according to geometrical principles, and so that is the way that painters ought to depict it. So one of the reasons why perspectival painting got going, because there was a belief that if God had created the world according to geometry, then in order to truly depict God's creation, painters better study geometry and learn how to paint things according to true geometrical verisimilitude. At the end of the 13th century, the Franciscan friar Roger Bacon, who was a great champion of this new illusionistic three-dimensional style of painting, wrote a treatise to the Pope of the time, Pope Clement IV, in which he championed this new form of representation that he called geometric figuring, and he advocated that the Christian world should adopt this new style of imagery because it would help to make people to see and believe the scenes of Christ and the saints and believe that what they were seeing was actually there in front of them. Bacon understood that this new geometric style of imagery could actually give people, as it were, a sense of virtual reality. It could make them believe they were really seeing the events depicted. 
And so he advocated that the church should encourage painters in this new view because it would reinvigorate Christian faith and thereby inspire a new crusade to the Holy Land. It didn't inspire a new crusade to the Holy Land, but it did, however, usher in a radical new way of seeing. And we see that new way of seeing in its full flourishing at the height of the perspective revolution, which is basically the early 16th century. And in an image by Raphael that we have in front of us, we see the threat to Christianity that this new style of imagery ultimately brought into being. The image in front of us is a picture by Raphael from the 16th century. It's in the Raphael rooms of the Vatican Palace just after you go through the Sistine Chapel. And what we see in this image is on the lower bank, the image is divided into two parts. The lower part of the image has saints and martyrs who are destined to go to heaven. And the upper part of the image shows Christ and the apostles seated on a rather concrete-looking bank of clouds. So this is, again, an image of heaven and earth. But what's important about this image now is that it is one coherent space. Heaven and earth are conjoined in one perspectively coherent three-dimensional Euclidean space. But this causes a problem. It's a beautiful image, heaven and earth conjoined in one overall scheme. But it raises a fundamental question that was going on at this time in history. And the question is this. If people have come to accept, as they had in the early 16th century, that the space around us here on earth is a Euclidean void that all of us operate in this three-dimensional geometric realm. And this is the realm that would become the realm of physics that Galileo would articulate in the next century. The question is raised, how far out from the Earth does this three-dimensional Euclidean space extend? Does it extend out to the moon? Does it extend out to the planets or to the stars? How far does it go? And this is the question that Raphael is wrestling with in this picture because the problem is this if the three-dimensional space here on earth doesn't have a finish and it goes on and on and on then where would we have room for heaven and this is a fundamental problem for Christianity that is raised by the new perspectival view of space it's the view of space that would ultimately be taken on board as our arena of reality in the next century with the science of Galileo and Newton. You're listening to science writer Margaret Wertheim. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. 2006 has been a busy year for Zocalo Radio. Click on Zocalo's website to hear radio guests such as former White House counsel John Dean, L.A. Dodgers president Jimmy McCourt, writer Caitlin Flanagan, theater maverick Heather Woodbury, and many more. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. In a moment, we return to Space versus Spirit, why the battle between science and religion is driving us crazy. Stay tuned to Zocalo. there's another way for you to support public radio programming on KPCC. You can donate your used vehicle to 89.3 by calling 877-KPCC-CAR and we'll handle the rest. A representative will explain all of the details. 
most important, you'll be supporting the quality programming you expect from 89.3 KPCC. Call today, 877-KPCC-CAR. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to science writer Margaret Wertheim. Galileo and Newton would essentially adopt the perspectival painter's conception of space and make the whole of the cosmos a three-dimensional void. This is the space in which we can be sure that the laws of physics apply. By the end of the 17th century, Newton's cosmology had declared that this space is the space of reality and it goes on forever. The infinite universe of modern science is a triumph of mathematical thinking. It's also been a triumph for physics in so many ways. But it raises the question of if physical space goes on forever, how can we possibly conceive of an idea of where heaven and hell might be. Hell isn't such a problem for Christians, but heaven is a very big problem. The medieval cosmos, as I said before, it was important in the medieval cosmos that the physical world was finite because it appeared to leave plenty of room for there to be some immaterial, extra-physical realm. But if physical space goes on forever, then it seems to threaten the whole idea of any kind of other space of being, any kind of spiritual space. And this is essentially the problem that modern cosmology gives us. Where medieval cosmology was dualistic, the view of modern science, the cosmology of modern science, is effectively monistic. There is only one space of reality here, and it is the material world. Even in Newton's lifetime, people understood the implications of this new cosmology. In Newton's lifetime, the French philosopher Lemaitre had already made the claim that man is just an atomic machine and that we must give up any idea of a soul or a spirit. Newton himself had understood the depth of the problem and he had tried to rescue the idea of dualism by saying that space itself was God's sensorium. Newton had justified the idea of infinite space because if God is infinite, then his sensorium, space, must be infinite. But Enlightenment philosophers saw that they could take Newton's science and strip it of its theological trappings, leaving a purely material picture of the universe. This infinite geometric void of the universe is our official world picture. This is the view that we put in our encyclopedias. This is the view we teach in our school. It's the one that we read about in the pages of our newspapers and magazines. It's a world picture that's been phenomenally successful in terms of providing us with a material understanding and all the marvellous technologies that have come with that, our electricity supply, microchips and spacecraft to Mars. But it's also a cosmology that leaves out a tremendous amount. In contrast to the dualism of the medieval world picture, we have with modern physics conceived of a world that is strictly monistic. If you want to claim that something is real in the modern age of science, you've increasingly had to be able to precisely locate it on a map of the universe and give us its mathematical coordinates. Say, this is where it is. Here are its coordinates on our mathematical physical map. 
In a sense, physical space has come to be seen as an index of existence itself. If we can't give a mathematical coordinates of something, it's increasingly difficult to say that it exists at all without invoking the charge of being accused of fantasising or make-believe. Heaven, hell, the soul and God. None of these things can be located on our maps of the physical world in the modern age of science. Hence, as Dawking and Steven Pinker and philosophers like Daniel Dennett insist, they must be regarded as childish fantasies that we need to give up or grow out of. The implications of this cultural shift away from metaphysical dualism to a kind of monism are absolutely enormous, not just for religious believers, but for secularists too. The spatial scheme of modern physics is increasingly taken for granted as the de facto model for all of our thinking. One of the unique characteristics of the modern physicalist scheme is that space in the modern scientific world picture is uniform and homogeneous. This means that laws of nature that we discover in one place are guaranteed to hold in all places, so that if I drop my pen and it falls to the ground, I can guarantee that the same law of gravity that operates here in LA also holds true in Sydney or on Mars or on the other side of the universe. This is called the cosmological principle, and it guarantees that no place in the universe is special or different to any other place. All places are equal, and all places are equally subject to the same underlying laws. This is one of the great triumphs of modern science, and it's one of the things that religious believers have actually been upset about. There isn't a special place for man in the modern scheme. All places have absolutely the same existential status in the modern physics worldview. But this view of reality is also now being put forward as a model for how we could conceive of human sciences and human behaviour. Evolutionary psychologists and Darwinian behaviourists, people like Steven Pinker, Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins, are asserting that the human cultural arena is itself a kind of homogeneous space in which universal laws apply to all people in all places throughout time. In this way of seeing, human beings become, in a sense, like Galileo's billiard balls. We're all subject to exactly the same underlying laws of behaviour that are as natural and materially based as the laws that guide subatomic particles. You're listening to science writer Margaret Wertheim. This is Zocalo. Join Zocalo as we kick off our 2007 season. On Tuesday, January 9th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents Jim Newton on Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. And on Tuesday, January 22nd at 7 p.m., Zocalo and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages present Tuning In the Broadband Channel, How the Internet is Remaking the TV Business, a panel moderated by John Healy of the Los Angeles Times editorial page. As always, Zocalo events are free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. We return now to science writer Margaret Wertheim. This view of a homogeneous void in which the space itself, as it were, controls the subjects, is coming to the fore in the psychological and human sciences in a way that I think is really problematic. 
Several years ago, I appeared on a radio program with one of the leading advocates of evolutionary psychology, Randy Thornhill, who'd actually written a book on the evolutionary psychology of rape. And he stated bluntly that the goal of evolutionary psychology was to emulate the methods of physics and to turn the study of human behaviour into a proper, empirically, mathematically rigorous science. According to this way of seeing, universal laws of human behaviour are encoded in our genes and all humans will express them naturally, given the opportunity. We are, in Richard Dawkins' famous terms, just gene machines, according to this way of seeing. This is a kind of militant new materialism and it's summed up very well by the Harvard cognitive scientist Steven Pinker in his book of a few years ago called How the Mind Works. Here's a quote from Pinker. He says, to understand sight, we have to look to optics. To understand human vision, we have to look to computers. To understand movement, we have to look to robotics. To understand sexual and familiar feelings, we have to look to genetics. To understand cooperation and conflict, we have to look to the mathematics of game theory and economic modelling. The reason he can say that is because he's believing that human cooperation and conflict operates in a kind of vacuum which is only ruled by the laws of mathematics, as in the physics model. Taking the model of neutral spaces physics as a paradigm for our understanding of human behaviour means that all cultural differences are annihilated as superficial window dressing. Thus, an understanding of what drives a middle-aged white male professor in Harvard will supposedly tell us what also motivates a teenage girl in Somalia or an elderly Inuit tribesman. This universalist homogenising view of culture is the principle that underlies Pinker's book, The Blank Slate, which is a sustained polemic against the idea of cultural specificity. It seems to me that this tool doesn't just erase theological principles like the Christian soul and the idea of heaven, but it's erasing the very unique and wonderful idea that human cultures are unique and special as individual instantiations. It's strange that that is happening at just the historical moment when so much of the liberal Western cultural tradition is moving in the direction of embracing diversity in all of its manifestations. And now we have science itself effectively instigating a backlash against the idea of cultural diversity. It is this aspect of the new materialism that I think even liberals, including myself, should give us great pause for thought. And there's a further dimension of this trend that I think is even more problematic that gets to the heart of what I think is the profoundest conflict between science and religion. If humans are indeed gene machines, as Dawkins tells us, and there are indeed laws of behaviour that we're all ultimately programmed by, then our moral behaviour must also be part of that pre-programming and be written into our genes. The idea that there are indeed universal moral laws is precisely the view now being promulgated by Sam Harris in his book The End of Faith, which was a huge diatribe against religious belief. Harris's book rightly points out the appalling hypocrisy of many religious believers who preach love at the pulpit before going out to blow up abortion clinics, protest against gay unions and ferment Armageddon. We do indeed need to counter this virulent, close-minded fundamentalism but I also think we should be wary of taking on board Harris's prescriptions for a way forward. Harris declares that humans are programmed with a set of moral precepts that will come to the fore naturally in all who are not perverted by outdated religious belief systems. He writes that it is a fact that our ethical intuitions have their roots in biology. 
He further goes on to say that a scientific understanding of the link between intentions, human relationships and states of happiness would tell us about the nature of good and evil and the proper response to moral transgressions. He even suggests that the day is coming when science will be able to tell us who is an evil sociopath and who is simply lacking in moral fibre. He's not alone in these sentiments. Richard Dawkins says similar things in his new book, The God Delusion, and Mark Hauser, another Harvard professor, has a book out now called Moral Animals, which expresses extremely similar ideas. According to Hauser, there is a universal moral grammar. When we judge an action morally right or morally wrong, we do so instinctively, Hauser says. We are not making conscious free will choices, but we are tapping into a system of unconsciously operative and inaccessible moral knowledge. So we have moved from the ground of a universal homogeneous space of physics to a similar conception in the field of moral action. We've reached a point where scientists are saying that it is science, not religion, that can tell us how to behave, and not only that, but it is science, not religion, that actually defines and can tell us what is right and wrong morally. This is a potential that has always been inherent in the enterprise of science, The notion that materialism could end up at this point is precisely why the church fathers of the 16th and 17th century were wary of the enterprise. They could see where unchecked materialism could possibly lead. Isaac Newton also understood the problem and tried to save the world by spiritualising space itself. But Newton's attempt failed. Materialism won out as the official epistemology of our age and I believe that our culture has been in a state of trauma ever since. The rise of religious fundamentalism, I think, can really be seen as a backlash against this kind of militant materialism and an insistence by people of faith that morality is actually a meaningful thing, that it is not something that is programmed into our genes. Theists insist, I believe, above all, that morality must be based on conscious choice, the idea of free will. If we are merely pre-programmed, then we are machines. We're not moral agents at all. If science is to be judged by the hardcore materialism of people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, then religious believers are quite right, I believe, to see it as their enemy. But I don't think we have to take on a militant materialism in order to accept science. I myself am an atheist, And I love science, it's been my life. But I find myself deeply troubled by this militant new materialistic atheism. And one of the things that I'd like to suggest as I finish here is that I think we need to find a way forward that recognises that there are multivalent ways of knowing. Science is a wonderful thing. I love my computer, I love the microchips, I'm glad I live in the age of antibiotics and anaesthetics and the contraceptive pill. Science is something that we can applaud and marvel at. It's something we should teach our children and it's something that we should protect in our schools. But science isn't the totality of knowledge. Certainly our understanding of the physical material world is important. But do we really want to restrict the totality of how we talk about human beings, human behaviour and human understanding, human knowledge and emotions to purely the material? The medieval cosmos was dualistic in a metaphysical sense 
medieval people believed that there was, as it were, two essences of being, body and spirit. But more importantly, it seems to me, the medieval world picture was pluralistic in a philosophical sense. Their cosmology recognised that there were, in a sense, different ways of knowing, different ways of understanding. Dante himself insisted that his book could be read in four ways, four completely separate ways of knowing. I don't want to suggest that we ought to be looking for a way back towards metaphysical dualism. I personally believe that when my body dies, I die, and that there is no such thing as a soul that lives on after me. But I do insist as a liberal secular atheist that I, me, Margaret Wertheim, has a self, and that self needs discourse of its own that can't be reduced to molecular biology and genetics. I think we need to recognise a form of philosophical pluralism that allows us to talk sensibly about the different aspects of our being and not try to funnel everything through the narrow channel of materialism. We do not have to deviate from metaphysical materialists to value and understand that different ways of knowing can be discussed. And I would just like to end on a very quick story about what I think is at stake here. After I wrote my first book on the history of concepts of space, I gave a talk on this subject and an anthropologist in the audience told me a lovely story. He said he was working in Namibia with the Himba people and one day one of these Himba men came up to him and said to him, do you Western people really believe that you're just isolated points in a big vacuum? And he said, yes, that's how our science tells us to believe. And the Himba man apparently looked at him with infinite pity and he said, well, in my culture we see it differently. In my culture we believe that each of us carries around with us a kind of a self-space. It's sort of a rather large bubble, I gather, around ourselves that walks around with us. And as we go about our business in our villages, our self-spaces are constantly intersecting with other people's self-spaces so that we never actually or very rarely experience ourselves to be alone. We're constantly literally in contact. Our self-space is constantly in contact with other people's self-spaces. And apparently this Himba man looked at this Western scientist with great pity and he said, if you people really think you're just isolated points in space, how on earth do you bear it? I think we're not bearing it. I think we're driving ourselves crazy. I think by trying to triangulate somehow between this rampant materialism, we are literally driving ourselves into a state of madness. I don't have the answers about what we're going to do about this, but I've tried here to discuss what I think is the questions, and I think that's what we really need to do a lot more of. So thank you very much. You're listening to science writer Margaret Wertheim. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. To find out more about Zocalo, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, Margaret Wertheim answers questions from the Zocalo audience. Stay tuned to Zocalo.
89.3 KPCC is now broadcasting in HD digital stereo. With a new HD radio receiver, you can listen to our main service and two alternative channels, BBC Mundo, the Spanish language news service of the BBC, and The Current, adult alternative music from Minnesota Public Radio. For more information on HD radio, please visit kpcc.org. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. In this final segment of Space versus Spirit, why the battle between science and religion is driving us crazy, the audience asks questions of Margaret Wertheim. You mentioned Pinker and the concept that morality is somewhere within the genetic construct. Is this accepted now or just a theory that's out there? Well, that, that's actually a very good question. If you read books by Pinker or Mark Hauser's new book or Sam Harris's book, they will say, they do say point blank, it is a fact that morality is encoded in our genes. They don't discuss it as if this is a possible theory. They declare that this is the way it is. And these are powerful scientists who have prestigious positions at places like Stanford and Harvard. And so I think it is creating an enormous sense of confusion in our culture. We have high-status scientists saying this is a fact. How are ordinary people to adjudicate that claim? And one way of adjudicating the claim is the way that religious fundamentalists do, which is just simply reject it outright and in doing so, to reject all of science, because if that's what science seems to stand for, they don't want any part of it. But it isn't a fact that morality is written in human genes. It isn't a fact at all. I would dispute it, and many, many people I know dispute it intensely. So what this raises is the question of how in our society are we to adjudicate claims that are made by high-status scientists. It's a very difficult question of our time. With the recent popularity of atheists such as Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins staking out sort of a militant position on their end, and then the rise of fundamentalism both in terms of the Muslim community and the Christian community, do you think we have to go back to kind of a Cold War status where it's a sense of mutual assured destruction, we just have to sit back and sort of tolerate each other, or is there ultimately a choice where one is indeed perhaps the correct choice and one is seen as being the false choice. Do you mean a false, the choice here between science and religion or are you saying the choice is between Christianity and Islam? I think between atheism and science and religion and what Sam Harris calls mythology or supernatural perspective on the world. Well, I mean, I pretty much disagree with Sam Harris's characterization of the whole landscape because, I mean, he is right that there are virulent versions of religious faith that are, you know, have the potential to start World War III. He's right about that. But it's a very, very narrow characterization about what constitutes religious faith. I know incredibly sophisticated Catholic intellectuals 
who don't seem to fit anywhere into his description of what religious believers behave like or think like. People like Harris painted as a black or white thing. You either have to give up religion and embrace science. He wants to have it just so that it's black or white, and I think that's a false dichotomy. Apart from anything else, I think it's just not going to happen. It's a fantasy. Talk about fantasies. That's a fantasy. The idea that religion is going to go away is a fantasy. And one of the things that really troubles me about Harris's characterization of faith is it seems to me it's a bit like being in a Roman gladiatorial arena. It's throw the Christians to the lions. You know, watch the Christians get gobbled up. Harris attacks Christianity in a way that I think is indicative. It's not a battle between science and religion. It's a battle between egos, I think, that it seems to me that the virulence with which some of these people, particularly Harris and also Richard Dawkins, attack religion suggests a kind of cultish quality on their side of the fence too. And it seems to me that we can all understand that there is a spectrum of faiths that are reasonable to have. And what's wrong with that? Why does it have to be Armageddon? Why can't we have a spectrum of faiths? I don't believe in God, but I believe that God doesn't exist for me, but I believe he exists for Dante. God may or may not exist, but either way he's real, and we have to deal with him. Thank you for your message and everything, and especially the pictures to illustrate the points. I evolved from the Midwest, or I've evolved from believing what I was told to believe where I was a born sinner, to believing empirical wisdom. For example, I say people are not sinners, but we are selfers. And we have self-based motives that may or may not be good for others affected by our choices. My question is, does a crystal ball or anything, do you see an evolution of us moving from managing our egos to a level of namaste? And what I'm wondering is, is like the Pope, I learned back in the late 90s, the Pope even said, hell does not physically exist. Hell is simply a spiritual separation from God. Pope John Paul even acknowledged evolution, but the church doesn't say, guess what? Our leader has you know, acknowledged evolution. What do you see in the crystal ball to where there could be a namaste and a respect for one another instead of if you don't believe the way I believe, then you're bad and I, God wants me to kill you? Well, I hope that we can evolve to a situation of some kind of recognition of other people's faith systems as a legitimate thing for them to believe. I think that the forces operating in our society at the moment are encouraging a hardening on both sides of the divide. We have religious fundamentalists getting more and more extreme and we also have scientific fundamentalists getting more and more hostile to religion. Sam Harris's book, I think, does our society an enormous disservice because he paints such a diabolical picture of faith that it can only further enrage people of faith. And it seems to me those of us who love science have a moral duty here to try to bring some calmness and respectfulness into the discussions. It seems to me that both sides 
are actually now ramping things up in a way that is quite dangerous. So I believe that the way forward has to be to talk about the kinds of issues that I've talked about tonight, to sit down with religious people and not just try to shove science down their throats, but to understand what it is that concerns them about science and try to assuage their fears that the things that are fundamental to them have to be given up if they come on board with science. But I don't actually see much evidence that our society is willing to have that discussion. Everywhere you look, it seems to me, it's science versus religion. And most of the proposals that have been put forward for some sort of conciliance are just basically asking religious people to capitulate on all the important points to say, oh, well, actually, that's really in the realm of science, which is precisely the thing that they're not going to do. So I think we're actually in a quite a dangerous situation. I I don't see us moving towards a rapprochement here. I actually see that the battle lines are getting drawn more and more strongly in very, very troubling ways and that scientists are fueling that. You've thrown out so much we could probably sit here for a month and discuss (laughs) all the issues. I'm actually a trained social scientist, but I've never, certainly in the latter part of my life, never felt the conflict between the tenets of science and religion And my approach is perhaps a little bit different than yours, but I wonder if the key isn't to sit people down and talk about what is God and the definition of God, because there are so many definitions of God, uh, depending on who you're talking to, that it might be more productive rather than setting it up as science versus religion. And, And I'm just wondering what you might think of that approach. Well, I think you're very right that there are lots and lots of definitions of God. But I think to sit down and talk about what is God is not really something that's going to convince anybody who doesn't already believe in God. I mean, if you don't already believe in God and you don't want to believe in God, what does it really matter to you what God is? It matters to the people who already believe in him. So it seems to me the people who believe in God, they don't need him defined for them. They have a conception of what God is. The people who don't believe in God don't care about the fine print, as it were. So it seems to me the question isn't what we think God is or what anybody thinks God is. It's more how are we going to deal with the fact that other people do believe in him even if I don't. You've been listening to Margaret Wertheim. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marcos Romer. Thanks for listening.